Maeve of Connacht, Conquests and Consequences. An audio article with Chris Thompson. Queen Maeve is, of course, one of the most familiar characters from Irish myth and legend, and one of the main protagonists of the great epic tale of the Toynbull Cúinne. In fact, she's so familiar a personage that before I started this, I took a quick look at some of the images of her offered by Google. There are a great many, of course. From the frequently reused and reseen Leydendecker illustration, that's the one from 1911, where she's seen casually reclining on a wooden throne, bedecked with horse skulls and sporting a fetching horned helmet, right up to the more recent alluring redhead of Jim Fitzpatrick's creation. Well, she can be recognised in any of them in all her glory. However, from everything I've gleaned from my textual explorations of the old stories... The original tales, while they may be redolent with exaggerated adventure, marvellous magical exploits, heroic feats, yet because they're firmly set in their agrarian context, they always have a very down-to-earth quality, and equally prominent are strong comedic elements that would have greatly appealed to their original audiences. Today I want to explore the stories of Maeve, the woman, as she is portrayed in those early texts, and I think she has far more to her than the glamorous fantasy that the familiar modern images might indicate. Now I've entitled this presentation Conquests and Consequences. I know, I like alliteration. And those of you who've already heard some of my retellings may think I like it a bit too much. Well, if so, I'm in good company. So did Jane Austen. Now, when I set out to prepare a presentation on Maeve of Connacht, I had absolutely no intention of evoking Jane Austen. But when I come to think about it a bit more, there are some similarities, and I was thinking that the tales I will be exploring today involve major sibling-sister rivalry, scrambles for high-status marriage alliances, family squabbles and hierarchical rumblings, who will secure the inheritance? Rivalry over acquisition of possessions. There are triumphs, revenges, regrets and mournful reflections. And indeed, at one point, Maeve even goes off to take the waters for her health, although not at Bath. But then Jane knew how to put together the elements of a good story with a sharp moral message. And so did our Irish storytellers. And equally, their society was just as much hedged around with custom and social ritual as Jane's. Although there was probably less taking of tea and visiting cards weren't as well written, they were probably somewhat sharper and more pointy-tipped. I think perhaps the point I'm trying to establish is that Jane Austen was creating well-observed comedies of manners set in the society of her time. And our Irish storyteller poets were not so different in their way. So what I want to do is to find out what we can about their view of this legendary Queen of Connacht. She has her finger in so many pies that I can only dip into some of the relevant stories. Well, because of all these large number of pies, I've organised the results of my rather limited trawl under several arbitrary headings, and they are arbitrary. I could have easily chosen other distinct divisions which were just as relevant. Well, let's go. I've started with Maeve's early years, her fight to win the rule and her murder of her sister. 
Well, let's have a look at Maeve's background as it's given in several early texts. Probably the most important source is the text known in translation as Maeve's Men or Maeve's Manshare. Now, that dates back to around perhaps six to 900 CE, or that's what it's thought, uh, textually speaking. But I'll also be drawing on the Adad Medhav, The Violent Death of Maeve, which is found in the 12th century Book of Leinster, though it's also an early text. It's a complicated story, so I've extracted some of the details that relate specifically to our heroine. I want to start with the section, Maeve and her sisters. Maeve is one of three, maybe six sisters, daughters of Yochid Fedlock. Sometimes it's Yochid Arav. They always get swapped. Yochid Arav was the earthly husband of the Aedin. But uh, Shinskelela, don't let's get lost in Maeve's sticky web just yet. It's a bit early for that. The other two girls who really come into the story are Ethna and Clothru. There are also three brothers. Uh, there's Lothar. His name means conspiracy or secret assembly. There's Nor, whose name means shame, but it also means modesty. Depending on how you use the word, the same word can mean the opposite. And there's Bresh, whose name generally means uproar. And they are known collectively as the Three Finn Nevna, uh, the three friends of Arwen. Now, at this point in the story, Maeve is not Queen of Connacht. It is Clothru, alongside her father, Yochid Fedlock, who is ruling Connacht. Now, Maeve is Maeve of Crookan all along, but she's not Queen of Connacht. The story of how Maeve of Crookan gains the right to rule in Connacht is not a pretty one. However, it does illustrate her determination and shows that she can be as ruthless as any man of her time. It seemed, it was told, that the three sons of Yochid decided to usurp the kingship from their father. Now, Clothru really wasn't happy about this, and she tried to do all she could to prevent it and make them see sense. But nevertheless, they declared that they were going to proclaim battle against their father, and Clothru could do nothing about it, so she took extreme measures. Are you intending to outrage your father, she said. It's a great injustice that will be done. The lads replied there were absolutely no other options as far as they were concerned. And do you plan to leave any descendants at all? Clothru asked. Not one, they replied. That isn't a good idea, she told them. You might all fall in the battle. There should still be an heir of our blood. Now let's see how we can manage this. Now, what she did was offer to sleep with each of her brothers in turn. And it said that this was the cause of the birth of Lugud Riev Nerig, Lugud of the Red Stripes, and he was the son of all the three Finns of Evna. Now, she used her pregnancy to try and prevent further bloodshed, though it didn't work very well. Well, you can't kill your father in battle now, she said. It's bad enough that you've slept with your sister and committed incest without fighting against your father as well. Well, this, then, so it is said in the tale, hindered them from victory in battle. Now, it's Clothru, as co-ruler with her father, who takes action here. It's not Maeve. And whatever you think of Clothru's choices... She was probably taking this cause of action because of the conflicting duties of kingship lay over open to her. 
she would do anything to avoid the curse of kinslaying and has found a way to get round it by laying on them an even more serious curse, the curse of incest. Unfortunately, it didn't work very well. The Dinhyanicus of Drumcruick tells the whole story, and they did fail to kill their father, but they were killed themselves. But nevertheless, Jokit made a proclamation after that. He said that no son from that point on could ever directly follow his father in rule. Now, this was putting paid to primogenitor, which wasn't practised anyway, but it pointed out how dangerous it was for a son to follow directly on his father, that there were constant problems of possible usurpation. That shows it's definitely a pre-Norman story. The Normans were particularly keen on primogenitor. They really wanted to know who their sons were. However, what is clear, according to the text, is that the birth of their son, Lugard Rievneric, is a good thing. He is, it is said, the son of all the three fathers, and he has red stripes. One goes round his neck, and one goes round his waist. And he takes a bit of each of his fathers into his own person, so his head looks a bit like Nor, and his legs look a bit like Bresh, and so on. Now let's go back to Clothru. Clothru used to bathe at the well in the island of Loch Ree that later bears her name. It's still known as Inish Clothran. This probably wasn't every day, although it said she used to bathe every day. It probably means that she used to bathe there during assembly times. This was a special place that she went to during the times of the Oinoch. Now, it's good distance from Rathcrohan, and it's on a series of borders. Even today, it's on the border between three counties. And back then, it said that the, the people, the Tuaths of Ulster and the Tuaths of Connacht, used to gather there. Now, Anoinot was really, really an important assembly. It was a time when questions of status were answered and uh, new laws were put together, disputes settled. And it was also a great time for games, storytelling, chariot racing, horse racing and general jollification as well as trade. These Oinoch these times were very important. So there's Clothru bathing in the, the well every day. And finally Maeve comes into our story and we reach one of the big gory bits. Maeve arrives where her sister is bathing, it's said again that the girl is pregnant, and she sticks a sword in her side, killing her. Now, whether by accident or design, she releases the unborn child, who is later named Furwither. Now, that means the one who is cut out. So we've now got these two boys. We've got the red striped boy, that's Lugard, and we've got Furwither, who is the cut-out boy. And I tell you, the story gets so complicated, I have to remember the nicknames or I'm lost. But although now Maeve takes over the rulership of Connacht as well as uh, being Queen, Queen Maeve of Crocon, there is a price to pay in the form of a gesh. And whenever you get a gesh, you know it's going to play an important role in the plot. And her gesh is she must take over the same custom as her sister. She must now bathe in the well exactly as Clothru did during her lifetime. And as I say, this is presumably, though it says every day, it must be an assembly time. It would be a long way to go from Crocorn to Lotri just for a bathe. And so... Poor Clothru. She thought she'd dealt with the problem even by taking extreme measures, but she'd forgotten about her sister. It wasn't just her brothers, but her sister 
who were ready to break the taboo on kingship and kinslaying. Now the third sister is called Ethna, and Maeve may have killed her as well. There are sources that tell us that Ethna was the wife of Concover at this time. Well, she wasn't his only wife as we'll hear later on. But around the area of Lochry there is a strong tradition that Maeve killed her sister Ethna by pushing her in the river that now bears her name. That's the River Inny. But it gets much more complicated than that. Because in the Dinhianicus of Firthwither, there is an alternative version where it's Firthwither who's said to be the son of Concover and Ethna. And it's Lugard Rhea Nerig, that's the one with the three stripes and the three fathers, who ambushes Ethna on her way to give birth at Kurokon. She's going back to Kurokon to give birth. He catches up with her and drowns her in the river Inni, which is why it bears her name, and then it's he who cuts the baby Firthwither free. Then, eventually, Firthwither grows up to kill Clothru, Lugard's mother, in revenge. Maeve's not involved in this version, but I have to say that folklore has her deeply implicated, especially in the Ballymountain area. Now, the other thing about Ethna is that she has a very strange reputation. She is known as Ethna the Horror or Ethna the Child Eater. And stories of her do have a strange quality. She is described in one version as having been fed on the flesh of infants to make her grow faster, presumably so that she'll become a useful bride at an earlier date. There is another version where she gets her name as Child Eater and it said why all the children fear her is because she is said to have cut off the tip of her baby's little finger. Now, this isn't some weird ritual. It seems that every time... Ethna had a child, the baby would die until she discovered that if she cut off the tip of its little finger, it would live. Now, this is not a common custom. It's not found anywhere else. It seems to be specific to her and there's not a lot of sense to it. But she does have a, have a Lilith-like character and this thing about the children fear her, it makes you wonder whether uh, she represents the fear of infant mortality. I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult to tell. Look, this is a complex web. I said we weren't going to go tumbling into sticky webs, but we have done. So to summarise, both Clothru and Ethna may have been married to Concover Mcnessa. Lugard, that's the red striped boy, is associated with Clothru. He's generally her son. But Furthwither, the cutout boy, is more often associated, except in Ballymahan area, with Ethna her son, also possibly the son of Concover. But what it leads to is that Maeve's murder of Clothru is, a, is the way she steals rulership of Connaught from her sister. That, that's the story that leads to that. And the murder of Ethna gives a motive for Maeve to be killed by Furthwither later on. And as for what happens to Jokid Fedluck, well, he seems to be of no more importance to the story. Text suggests that he later died of natural causes, but after Clothru's death, there is no debating. Maeve becomes Queen of Connacht. Now, I've called the second section Maeve the Mother, the Making of Dynasties. Now, Maeve is credited with a whole quiver full of sons. Her first recorded son, Avulgod, was the son of Concover Mcnessa. Yeah, as I said, she's married to him as well. 
But it's said that she left him very soon after the marriage. It was a bad match, apparently, and I'm not surprised they are totally unsuited to each other, at least as stories give their characters. Now, recently I was working on a short animated film based on part of the story of Brick Crew's Feast. I'll come to that story later. It all worked out well in the end, but I did have to fight hard to ensure that Maeve should not be portrayed as a slip of a girl with an extremely skimpy tunic. For a start, Maeve had at least seven full-grown strapping sons with Ailil. That dynasty of sons and the story of their quest for brides sounds like an early version of Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, the musical, only the songs aren't there, as far as we know. Her seventh sons are referenced in the text Toimbo Ragavnan, and they're all called Manya, everyone. She obviously didn't have much of an Im- imagination when it came to names. Mind you, the sons did have some extremely unusual and very illuminating nicknames. Look, I'm just going to give their names in translations. They're known as the seven Manyas. There's Manya, one, the Manya with a great love for his parents, a great filial love. There's Manya, Manya with less filial love. That's the second one. There's Manya, the one who was like his father. That's number three. Manya, the one who was like his mother. That's number four. There's Manya with the mouth of honey, obviously eloquent and well-spoken. That's number five. There was um, Manya, whose name was too great to be described. So Manya was really good, probably the favourite. And then there was Manya, who combined all qualities. This one had the form of both father and mother, and all the glory that belonged to both parents. So, actually, he was probably the favourite. Now, I really don't want to recount the entire story of their quest here. It's not relevant to what I'm talking about today. It's not a long story, and I'll attach a link to it in the accompanying package. Now, Maeve also had a daughter whose name was Finnevar, and she turns up in another story, Flid Breckren, and I'll come to her later on. So, that's Maeve and her sisters, and that's Maeve the mother. So, the next one I want to look at in terms of story is Maeve the queen. She has achieved her position of power. And in the stories that include her, she is powerful. She's ruler of Connacht in her own name and by her own right. She's the one who makes the decisions... Isolde always refers to her husband, Alil, as the other one. It's she who's responsible for those king's duties of maintaining coir, making right judgments, upholding the stability and welfare of the land and her people. That's her role, not Alil's. So I want to look at her in terms of her as a negotiator, a decision maker. There are several stories I could offer to illustrate Maeve's abilities as queen. Not perhaps the story of Nera. Well, I can't tell the whole story now, but it's not surprising that it's Alil who disturbs the peace of the king by offering a wonderful golden sword as a prize for a drunken dare that threatens to disturb the precarious balance between the worlds. Rathcrochan, after all, stands close to one of the places where the door between the worlds will readily open, the cave of Oenigat, the cave of the cats. But even so, that story, which is started by not one of her decisions, still finally leads to the first of the cows being brought to the bull that will create one of the two great bulls. In other words, it begins the process by which the bulls come to this world, the two two bulls that will finally create the chaos. So it is part of the story. 
perhaps the one I want to look at, the story I want to look at now, is my favourite picture of Maeve as she appears in Fled Brickrun. That's Brickrew's Feast. It is one of my favourite stories. Here she's caught clearly between a rock, quite a big rock, and a hard place, a very hard place. She has to deal with both the over weaning, spoiled and argumentative elite warriors of Concover and the marauding mayhem causing otherworld cats spilling horribly out of the cave portal. As I said, the otherworld cats come into this story. Now, I do wish I could tell you the whole story of Brickcrew's Feast. It is a wonderful story. But there are at least three story archaeology episodes all about Brickcrew's Feast for you to listen to if you wish. For now, let me tell you the part that involves Maeve. Well, it began when Concover could not decide who was to be champion of his elite heroes. The, you know, the one entitled to the champion's portion, the first and best cut of the roast big at the feast. Well, I suppose you could say it came to a battle of words and fists and it might have been worse if Concover had not had an idea. He sent all three, Loigra, Conal Kiernock and the young, overgrown and spoilt man-child Cucullan to Maeve at Cruacon. Yeah, he was passing the buck. He was getting her, his ex, to sort out his problems. There is, in the text, in the Henderson translation, a wonderful description of the heroes arriving at Cruelcorn in the chariots. Findavar describes a scene to her mother Maeve, and it's clear that she's already half in love with the beauteous Cucullan. She describes him with great details, and you can hear the sighing in her voice as she does. And all that stuff about his teeth are like pearls and his eyes are like dragonstones. Oh yeah, she's already hooked. But Maeve is as hard-headed, as quick-thinking as usual. And she knows these great hulking heroes will be a danger to the safety of her court and her land. She wants rid of them. She also wants to get rid of the, so far, undefeatable otherworld cats that stalk her feasting hall, bringing destruction and terror in their wake. So she sets this challenge as one of, perhaps the central challenge, to choose just one of these heroes as champion. And it's quite clear that she rather hopes the cats might defeat the lot, all three. But the heroes survive the night. Liger and Connell by clinging to the rafters of the roof. But the cats aren't beaten. Cucullan does best, as he always does. The cats aren't beaten, as I say, but neither is Maeve. She calls each hero in turn and presents him with a silver or white gold embossed cup. Cucullan gets the best. His one is made of gold, decorated with dragon stones. Nevertheless, each hero believes that they've been chosen by her as the champion, and they race back to Owen Maka. So she's passed the problem back to Concover. Now, how he finally settles the issue is a great story and involves a mysterious giant warrior, warrior Kuroi from Kerry. And if you want to know, check out the story archaeology episodes or read the Henderson translation. It's convoluted, but well worth wading through. Uh, the translation, not the story archaeology podcast. We hope we've sorted it out. I suppose now the next thing I want to look at is Maeve and her war. Yep, we finally come to the War of the Bulls. This is the centre of a galaxy of stories, and there is so much to tell. Oh, I could talk about Fergus and his close relationship with Maeve, the track of their battles around Ireland, the hero meetings and more. But I think I'm going to, for this talk, just stick to the early section known as the pillow talk. 
because here Maeve demonstrates important aspects which are central to her own character. This, this version comes from the Book of Leinster, but it's still an early version of the story. The section, the pillow talk, the section of the story, which opens the Leinster version, also represents, if you like, the tipping point of the whole cycle. All the actions, the life action decisions and attitudes of leaders of Connacht and Ulster have led up to this point, both in the main Toyn tale and indeed in all the Foschgelter that belong to the whole galaxy of Toyn stories. And they all lead up to this point, bringing those drumming hooves of the bulls to be ever closer. It's as if they start in the other world and every action taken by Concover or Maeve or Cahullan all cause those bulls to become more and more real until they finally manifest and are born as the great brown and the great white bull. And after the pillow talk, battle and destruction become inevitable tipped by rivalry. It's a rivalry between husband and wife. It just begins with them listing their personal wealth and possessions. And it's not merely about greed or avarice. It's mostly about status. Maeve's words make make it very clear. First, she reminds Ilel that it was she that was given sole rulership of Connacht because it was she that was the finest and noblest of all the sisters. There's no mention of murder at all here. And then she talks about the bride price that defines her character. Now, I'll read this as it comes from the translation. I demanded a strange bride gift, such as no woman before me had ever asked of a man, of the men of Ireland, to wit, a husband without meanness, without jealousy, without fear. Make sure you know these three conditions. If my husband should be mean, it would not be fitting for us to be together, for I am generous in largesse and the bestowal of gifts, and it would be a reproach for my husband that I should be better than he in generosity. But it would be no reproach if we were equally generous. If my husband were timorous, neither would that be fitting for us to be together, for single-handed I am victorious in battles and contests and combats, and it would be a reproach to my husband that his wife should be more courageous than he, but no reproach if they are equally courageous, courageous providing that both are courageous. If the man with whom I should be were jealous, neither it would be fitting, for I was never without one lover quickly succeeding another, without a man, one man in a shadow of another. Now that last sentence has often been quoted out of context, but what Maeve is demanding that her is her recognition of having equal status to any man. Now this was not something that was impossible under law, but even, well just like today, it wasn't automatically achieved without struggle. It was also true that early Irish law offered more sexual freedom to women than post-Norman law with its emphasis on primogenitor. You had to know whose sons were whose. What Maeve is doing by listing every one of their every one of their possessions, as I said, is not just to do with avarice. She is reminding Alil of the nature of the marriage they have, the status of her, her husband, 
and different types of marriage, marriage were defined by Lauren. She has the marriage that allows her complete equality. And as I say, it was still hard won. There's not every woman in Irish story who has that right. But Maeve does admit that she has such a partner and she admits to Ailil, you're not niggardly, you're not jealous, you're not inactive. So in other words, uh, her status is not at risk and neither is his. She can be the queen, but he is not belittled by this either, which makes life a bit easier all round. She's making sure that everybody knows that, in fact, that she is Queen of Connacht. The, the problem lies in the discovery of the one discrepancy between them. And again, I'm quoting from the text. But among Isla's cows, there was a special bull. He had been the calf of one of Maeve's cows. Now, it's an interesting detail. It seems that this great white bull, this fair bull, had, had slighted Maeve's status by refusing to be part of the Queen's herd. The bull insists that he must be part of a King's herd, not a Queen's herd, that he's of too high stated himself. Now, this is particularly interesting. It's this, this is the first of the other world bulls made manifest the white and the brown, and here is the white tipping the balance by saying that he will not belong to his rightful owner, the queen. And so the fragile balance of equality has tipped. And so, as it's told, Maeve applies to concover of Ulster for the great brown bull as a loan, and she offers generous interest, and repayment is included, I and mean, there's huge interest in repayment. Uh, for this loan. not even, She doesn't even ask him to give her the bull. She just wants to loan it so that when she does this infantry of their possessions, they're equal again. But, well, it's a long story. Nothing can prevent the cascade of tragedy from commencing. And eventually, and finally, both provinces are completely laid to waste. And as I said, it's a very long story. So this gives some examples of the nature of her queenship and the decisions and the way she handles her position and the fight she has had to be recognised as an independent and equal status ruler. So the last part of the story I'm going to tell, I've labelled it Regrets, I've Had a Few, and it includes her violent death. So we have to come back to the gesh that was laid upon Maeve for killing her sister Clothru, or perhaps the killing of Ethna, or perhaps both. And finally, that kinslaying catches up with her. Furwither has grown up bearing a grudge for the slaying of his mother. Hardly surprising, really. And one day, when it's said in the Adath Methov, one day when Maeve is bathing at the well, her nephew takes up his sling and makes a cast at her, hitting her directly in the head and killing her instantly. Now, the use of a piece of Hard cheese as a missile could be imagined as his sorrow and smouldering anger overcoming him so that he uses whatever comes to hand uh, to rid the world of this kinslayer. In this case, he uses his lunch. But it's not that simple. The story tells that this was very much a premeditated act of revenge. Furwither takes the trouble to practice beforehand so that he can ensure success. He goes off to the island, gets a stick the same height as Maeve, plus a rope the length of the distance the sling missile must travel. That's from the, from the edge of the island, or maybe even from the mainland. 
Now he can return to his home in Awan Mecca, and there he practices the shot using the stick and rope as a measure, and he places an apple on top of the stick to represent Maeve's head. So he shoots at that, and once he can be certain that he can hit the apple each time, he returns to Clothru's Isle to ensnare Maeve. Now, whether he always planned to use the hard cheese or had just mislaid the slingstone, the story doesn't tell. The story also doesn't tell how Maeve felt about her actions. I don't know about this. Was she sorry for what she'd done? Here was this pragmatic woman, though, continuing to follow the Gesh after all those years. Firth with her was now full-grown. Maeve was a great leader, yet here she was, even after the great defeat of the Toyn, still following her old customs, which had been established after the death of her sister long ago. Does this imply regret? Maybe. It does suggest that she continued to reflect on her past actions. Was she aware of Firthwither's plan? Who knows? So I suppose I'd better put a few conclusions together that uh, that we can draw from our examination of these stories from the old texts. Well, one thing I think is very clear is that all the characters whose stories gather and revolve around the Toyn are very much personages of this world. They live in time, in the usual way, and therefore their motives and actions always lead to inescapable natural consequences. You know, that you can see the cause and effect of their actions. Maeve is not an otherworld character. In fact, all the characters of the Toyn tend to ignore otherworld help and advice, even when it's offered. Think of the way that uh, Kukolan meets the Morrigan and insults her, or how Eilil um, threatens the balance of power by the Sawan Dare, which upsets the other world in the adventures of Nera. So they ignore otherworld help and advice, even when it's offered. In fact, they may be suspicious of it, even aggressive towards it, as in the examples I've just given. The other world is seen as a threat, rather than the source of balance and fertility and life. The truth of the king is keeping that other world door open. Maeve is not a famous warrior. She's a, le- a leader. That doesn't mean she's not a fighter, but she's a leader, not an elite hero champion. She's not a famous poet, though she can be very poetic and quite far-sighted at times. She will not take advice. She acts on her own feelings. In fact, every act of Maeve or Concover seem to bring those bulls closer to fighting. Whatever they do, it just brings that story, inevitable story, closer to reality. In fact, the bulls may be the symbols, the manifestations of these acts of bad faith. It's interesting to make a comparison between Concover MacNessa and Maeve of Connacht. 
In fact, at times, they quite remind me of Henry II of England and his wife, Al Eleanor of Aquitaine, another favourite pair of mine. Great characters out of history. Although the comparison only goes so far, because the tempestuous relationship between Eleanor of Aquitaine, a very strong independent ruler in her own right, and Henry II, uh, a powerful ruler of England who had claims over most of France and was trying to empire build, uh, you know, their tempestuous relationship came about after she left the King of France, who was a weak character. And so that the analogy doesn't really work. We can't cast Alain as the King of France and it doesn't work. But it's just that tempestuous relationship with Henry's soft-hearted attitudes towards his sons, where he keeps forgiving him and, and Eleanor will do anything to uphold the rights of her sons. And they come to blows, they come to battles of words, and it's, it's quite a story. That's the thing about Concover, and I said about Henry and his sons, Concover can be very soft-hearted towards his favourites, especially Cucullin. And he is known, constantly known, for making bad or perhaps foolish judgments. Even the way he just hands over all his stuff to Cucullin, whether it's the, you know, whether, oh, have my helmet, have my armour, have my chariot. Cucullin could do no wrong, but it's worse than that. I think his real act of bad faith again comes as one of the early stories, part of the Fushkelter when he deals with Maka and by insisting that she races the king's chariots when she's in childbirth, he breaks several terrible taboos. It's a bad judgment. It it goes against the rules about women in childbirth. No one can gainsay a woman in childbirth. There's all sorts of taboos set around them and to do that sort of damage was unforgivable and it led to very bad results in the toy. So I think if you can sum up Concover, his flaw is bad judgments. Maeve's fatal flaw is that she is unduly ruthless and definitely guilty of kinslaying. And so both of them re re represent fatal flaws in rulership, kinslaying and bad judgments. And that's enough to, to depose a ruler. In, under early Irish law. Both Connacht and Ulster, in the Toyn and the Toyn-related stories, they're full of stories about perverted or strange births. The taboos about childbirth and the respect for childbirth is constantly compromised, whether it's in the birth of a uh, Concover himself or Connell Cairnog, and Mucker herself. It starts with birth and childbirth that moment at which the other world manifests in this world in, in a way that's absolutely inescapable, that it's bringing that life through. If that is perverted, then there can be no fertility in the land. And it's why the stories of Ethna may be there associated with Maeve. It's something that Isolde and I want to look in a lot, lot more closely because as we're, we were going along in the early stages of the Toyn and we kept coming up with the fact that it is birth that causes trouble. And we were saying, well, where does it come in in terms of Connacht? And yet the moment I have looked at Maeve straight away, when you go back and remind ourselves, as I went back and looked at the well and the cheese, which we did some years ago, and discovered that there it is again. This uh, slaying of Ethna is also just as relevant. Although these stories have a symbolic quality, I, I, I want to be very clear, I don't see Maeve as a symbolic 
leader. She, 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 or even a symbolic representation of sovereignty. I'm sorry, I don't think she is. But Clothru, she has every right to be. She is a symbol of what sovereignty is meant to be. And she holds the key to the sovereignty of Connacht. And of course, Maeve usurps this. She has taken it to herself. She's taken the symbols of sovereignty, but she does it through kinslaying. And Ethna, as I've said several times, holds the key to fertility and fecundity of the land, as do all Ethlers, Ethlus, Ethnas, even Aedines, the kernel, the seed. And of course, if you destroy your seed, you lose your fertility. So I think there is a symbolic quality, but it's not in the main characters. It's not Maeve who is symbolic. It's the it's the characters she interacts with, the qualities she interacts with, are personified, if you like, in Clothru and Ethna. And of course, Maeve's war leaves the land broken. And the more I look at the Toyn, I feel that, as older and I feel that it's a wonderful example of what not to do. It's a counterexample of rulership, rulership. Here is a good story. Everything goes wrong. It's a tragedy. Um, it's cathartic. It's it's a bit like a Greek tragedy. Here's what not to do. Um, if you do this, it's all going to fall to bits. And it's a great story, but it's a story about how things went wrong. You won't do it like this, will you? It's that sort of story. But let's go back to looking at what it tells us about Maeve. I've talked about the negatives, but I want to, there are a lot of positives. And this is what I really want to finish with. I think Maeve is a realistic woman leader. You know, it's like in the since the 60s, it's been important to get more realistic women into films with positive roles, and it's been largely successful. Well, you can look back at these stories. There was a realistic woman leader right in the middle of the earliest Irish stories. She's not portrayed as a symbol of anything. Obviously, as I've said several times, her sisters may be symbolic of what she throws away, what she does wrong. But here's some more. She's not a victim and she's not a sacrifice. She is allowed to make mistakes and she makes her own mistakes. She lives by her own decisions. She clearly cares for the well-being of her land and her people. It's there. That's what she is. She's there to look after them. She's not a symbolic wife and mother. In fact, she's better known than her sons. So she's not just known for being the mother of somebody. No, it's her that's well known, not her sons. The Manias are very little known. She is allowed to celebrate her lovers, and she does. She's completely equal to all the male protagonists. In fact, she's stronger than a lot of them. She has the right to be wrong. And if that's not an intoxicating breath of fresh air, I don't know what is. So what I want to say today is let's celebrate Queen Maeve for what she is rather than what she is not. And I think that's what I come up with the more I read about the woman, Queen Maeve. I think Boudicca would have loved her. So I'm going to finish with a poem that I wrote for the episode, The Well and the Cheese. And when I went back to look at it, I came across this poem again, and I thought that it might be a good thing to finish with. And it's about the death of Maeve. And it goes like this. And Maeve... That famous queen of Connacht, that virtuous virago, woman of renown, serpent-wise and venomous. How did she die? 
Was it Avil on a night of pillow talk, on a night of boasting and bragging? Was there one too many pillows plumped to stifle her competitive tongue? Was it Avil who brought about her end? No, though he might have thought of it. Was it nearer, ghosted and goaded into the darkness of a sour night by the promise of a silver sword? Did he hesitate before he carried back the warning of she attack, savage their anger? No, he was loyal, though he might have stayed away. Was it the cats from out of the darkness of another world, cave strong they were, who had bested heroes, a champion's portion? Cullen hardly succeeded Maeve's test. Did her pets turn upon her? No, though they might have relished the task. And Morrigan, that sharp-eyed watcher, her wisdom and guidance ignored and insulted by a bright young hero, ill done that day. Did Maeve also offend the woman, drawing down her raven wrath? No, although she would have gladly done so. A battle for bulls, both brown and white, white, gold and red, red-blooded deeds, gold-greedy hands, all these things might have been her end. A slaughtered sister, a sword in the side, and a brief moment of pity for an unborn child, maybe. A birth and a death, there by a well on an island, in a lake, in a river, there the milk of kindness dried and hardened. There she died, killed by a sister son, killed by a single cast of a sling, killed by a piece of cheese. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Maeve today. So, thanks for listening. Bye.